0: to the bit by bit podcast. I am your narrator, Sarah. The three main goals of this podcast are one, to share the works of fiction that don't get mainstream media attention by authors that are not well known. Two, to entertain those listeners who want a little spice in their life. And three, to provide a free platform for people who are too cheap or too lazy to go out and buy the actual book. But don't worry, we don't judge. This is basically us in a nutshell. Disclaimer real quick, folks. Some of our stories feature mature subjects, violence, profanity, or topics of a sexual nature. Listener discretion is always advised. This podcast is definitely not rated PG. All of the books that we feature on the show will be available for purchase on Amazon and other platforms. Let's jump into today's episode. This week, we are featuring my book, Returning to Snohomish, and we are on part two of the series today. Let's jump right in. Chapter 3. Nothing could have prepared her for the shock of being transplanted into small-town life. She came from the city, breathed it, and that made it part of her. To leave that now was like cutting off a limb. This town's inhabitants were slow, closer to animals in a zoo than people. Upon first glance, she immediately wanted to go home where things were safe and people were normal. Excerpt from The Long Road Home by Julia Swan. Passed. The house in Seattle was filled with boxes as my mother waded through piles of clothing, toys, and other items I had collected through the years. Our home was one of those massive old craftsman-style monstrosities from the 50s, with a rabbit warren of hallways that led to closets filled with endless supplies of linens, old toys, and clothes that I had long since grown out of. We had lived here for the first 11 years of my life, and I had absolutely no desire to move away. Our front room was carpeted with hideous green shag that should have been replaced years ago. The flooring, not covered by awful carpet, was damaged beyond repair. The foundation was cracked, and there was a rat problem in the basement. But this was our home and I could not imagine being happy anywhere else. Our block was a maze of similarly run down homes with substantially unkept yards next to the less prestigious and industrial part of town. The street's other occupants were bus drivers, teachers, electricians, and other blue collar workers. None, my parents included, had the money to buy the enormous homes that cost a fortune to heat in the winter and needed endless repairs. To our parents, the home was a compromise. It was close to work and reasonably priced. When the short list of positive attributes was exhausted, they complained about the neighborhood and constantly talked about moving. Despite the grittier elements, I love the smell of the dirty river below our street, the rundown homes, and the factories in the distance— Chain-link fences lined streets with no sidewalks, and rough-looking kids on bikes rode by our house at all hours and sometimes broke into cars on our street. None of that mattered to me. Seattle was home, and I never wanted to leave. It was what I knew, what was familiar, and I didn't want to change. I loved every single bit of Seattle. The thought of leaving it all for a sparsely populated farm town was literally my worst nightmare. Unfortunately, my mother shared none of the love I felt for Seattle. She made that clear when she announced we were buying a house in a small town called Snohomish. The shock of leaving all I had ever known in my preteen life was like a bucket of cold water being poured over me while I slept. There was no time to grieve, no time for anything but to move our possessions to someplace new and unfamiliar. Even worse, my mother was determined we needed to go through everything we owned and donate anything we were not using. Despite my mother's excitement, this was a task I could not summon any enthusiasm for. "'Julia, get down here and make some decisions,' my mother shouted irritably. "'Now!' She had been packing for weeks, and her irritation at my lack of cooperation had reached its zenith. I stumbled down the steps and looked at her mutinously. I was a selfish child, unconcerned with anything but my own angst. I didn't want to leave Seattle, much less move to some pokey little country town with a name that most people could barely pronounce." I had friends here, and the school year was just about to start. That meant I would have to start all over again at a new school where all of the girls already had their established group of friends. It was social suicide, and I was not going to embrace any part of it. We had visited the Riverside town of Snohomish a few weeks back. As our beat-up station wagon rolled between fields of produce and through the center of town, I quickly realized everything here was very farm-oriented, and this was bad news. Having grown up on Madonna, Wham, and Michael Jackson, country living was not exactly my cup of tea. I loved the city, my city friends, and all the fun activities the city had to offer. Things seemed very different in this small town, and I was sure that I would never make friends with the corny country girls. My mother drew my attention back to the present. I have five boxes of toys here, Julia. Don't you think maybe we could give some of these away? She was trying to visualize how we were going to fit all of our things into the small U-Haul truck currently parked in our driveway. It was 3 o'clock, and I would much rather have been hanging out with my friends playing Atari or looking through Teen Beat magazines. I wanted desperately to vent about the unfairness of my situation, but we had said our goodbyes that morning. On the suggestion of the mothers, I was sure, a group of my friends had presented me with a large horse poster that everyone had signed with well wishes. It didn't seem fair I'd have to miss all of the fun projects coming up, as well as that year's Double Dutch competition. My best friend Ramona and I had worked all summer to perfect our routine, which involved skipping rope with a small jump rope while the larger ropes turned around me. I'd seen the routine the summer before at the high school, and I planned to show everyone how cool it looked. We had participated in the citywide Double Dutch competition for the last four years. This year, we had been sure our routine would get us a ribbon but now I was being replaced by Sierra Castle. She was terrible and hadn't even been on the team the previous years. Despondently, I flopped down in front of an overflowing box and pulled out a worn-out Cabbage Patch doll. Its name was Hillary, and I had dressed it in a pair of blue overalls and a pink blouse. Hillary's dark hair was braided and draped over her shoulder. There was a small yellow plastic bunny barrette holding the strands of hair together. There was another doll named Edward in the box. At some point, I had taken the liberty of giving it a haircut. "'Its reddish-brown hair stood out at odd angles, which didn't seem to fit with its perky smile and khaki slacks. "'There were red Kool-Aid stains on its blue plaid shirt. "'I grinned wickedly, remembering taking my mom's sewing scissors to the doll's hair. "'She'd waited in line for nearly 24 hours to get me this gift at the local Toys R Us. "'The popular doll had been all the rage for a couple of years and seemed to be everywhere.' It even had its own cartoons for a while. Despite its popularity, it was only a doll to me, and I hadn't even asked for it. I'd wanted a bike that year. Instead, I got two well dressed Cabbage Patch dolls that spent most of their existence in a box in my closet. Throw these away, I told her without emotion, tossing the dolls in her direction. My mom looked hurt. Clearly, she remembered waiting in line for the popular dolls and how much they meant to so many girls my age. I was sure she wished I was more like those types of girls, the ones who played with dolls and didn't talk back or have temper tantrums. Ignoring her, I dropped the two hard faced dolls in the Goodwill box unceremoniously and turned to my other unwanted toys. For a moment, I thought she might cry, but then she sniffed and turned back to her own task. There was too much to do, and she was a relentless taskmaster when it came to packing. She was sorting through a box of my dad's things. "'Where is Dad, anyway? He should be doing that, not you,' I told her, examining a broken Easy-Bake oven before tossing it into the giveaway box. The door had been slammed shut one too many times. Now it stood at an odd angle and would not close properly. After a dozen or so raw chocolate cakes, I'd given up on a career in confections and used the toy to melt Barbie dolls. My mother looked slightly flustered at my question. In recent times, she was not very good at dealing with my preteen mood swings and lack of manners.' She sighed deeply as if fortifying herself to deal with my moody teen tantrum. I already told you he started his new job today. He's meeting us at the new house tomorrow. She had told me the same thing multiple times, but in typical spoiled fashion, I just didn't remember or hadn't cared. My father had recently gotten a job as a mechanic at the Snohomish Ford dealership, and my mother had gotten a part-time job as a receptionist for an insurance agent. With their modest salaries and a substantial dip into their savings, they had purchased an old fixer-upper about a half a mile from the river in Snohomish. As a selling point, my mother insisted that if you stood at the top of our driveway on your tippy-toes, you could see a tiny sliver of the Snohomish River. I couldn't see it or understand why having that view was so important. To my mom, though, that meager little slice of scenery meant we had a river view and we were moving up in the world. Unable to share my mother's vision of utopia, I shrugged and pulled out a tan canvas unicorn bag. Inside were some plastic strawberry shortcake dolls, a few fruit-flavored lip smackers, some little jars of pastel nail polish, and a leaking tube of lip gloss. The bag smelled like strawberries. I wasn't sure whether it was the little dolls or the leaking lip gloss. All of these had been gifts from my mom at some point to bribe me into acting like the well-behaved daughter she always wanted. Unfortunately, I was a spoiled, selfish, and obnoxious child, and no amount of gifts could change that. Throwing the leaking lip gloss into the garbage, I separated the dolls from the lip smackers and nail polish. The dolls could go, but I would keep the cosmetics. I had not been allowed to wear makeup until then, but I was hoping my mom would be persuaded, with the help of a major guilt trip into letting me wear some soon. Snorting, I realized this was probably a wasted effort. We were going to a small farm town, and I highly doubted anyone my age would wear makeup or dress fashionably. I never could understand why my mom wanted so badly to come to this little pokey town. She'd fallen in love instantly during a summer outing at an event called Clahia Day's. That warm July visit, we walked the downtown streets, ate cotton candy, played carnival games, and rode the Ferris wheel. I suppose it was okay as far as fairs were concerned. It hadn't been as fun as the Puyallup Fair or as cool as Seattle Center, but it was better than sitting at home watching television. When we returned to Seattle, she started dropping not-so-subtle hints that we should move. From that point on, she made her case, gathering as much evidence as she needed to convince my father to leave the city. First, there was a crime, then the pollution, the bad neighborhood kids, the gangs, the drugs, and our lack of a nice home. Personally, I didn't think our home was bad at all, but my mom didn't like the fact that it was a rental and the owners didn't want to spend much on upkeep. After weeks of not-so-subtle persuasion from every angle, my dad reluctantly agreed to look at homes in Snohomish. There were other homes in the Seattle area for sale, and I was sure to point out the signs at every chance I got— What I didn't count on was how stubborn my mom could be when she made her mind up. I had initially thought the Snohomish thing was just a phase, and she would forget about it in a few weeks. But after my father agreed to look at the houses, my mother became focused in a way that I'd never seen before. Being the ever-devoted husband and father, my dad let her steamroll him right into a move to Snohomish as soon as we could find an appropriate home. Instinctively, I knew that my father would have preferred to stay in Seattle. He was a creature of habit who was comfortable remaining in the same stable place he had always been in. In sharp contrast, my mom loved change, adventures, and the possibility of starting a new life. From the moment she had seen Snohoma, she had fallen in love with the little antique shops, the charm of the river, the historical homes, and the homey people. I had no idea what homie meant, but I knew that whatever it was, I would not like it. All I could see was kids with cowboy hats, wrangler jeans, and ugly button-down shirts. Every single portion of this plan looked tragically uncool, and I wanted no part of it. The country western fashion was only scraping the surface of my dislike for all things Snohomish. There wasn't a mall within a 20-mile radius, and there were no restaurants except McDonald's and Dairy Queen, and no one seemed to have any clue what MTV was. There was only the disgusting Brown River... The waterway was surrounded by a bunch of smelly farms and seemed to flood every year, sending floating garbage and debris into basements and up to back doors of unlucky homes within the floodplain. I was mentally listing all of the reasons I hated our soon-to-be town when my mom interrupted my thoughts. "'Honey, do you even wear these pants anymore?' she asked, holding up a pair of pink Jordache jeans with little gold zippers at the ankles. I'd grown out of the pants in question two summers ago, along with most of my other clothes." "'but I stubbornly refused to throw anything out "'just to spite my mom. "'She was fanatically organized and fastidious "'about giving away anything "'that was not currently being used. "'Me having things in my dresser "'that I could not wear drove her crazy. "'Philosophically, I kept the clothes "'to remind me of what I had once been. "'I was a girl who had once had the world "'and now would have nothing but a smelly river town "'in the middle of one huge and stupid farm.' With no mall near the new house, there was no way I was going to be able to get cool clothes like the ones Seattle offered. My life as I knew it was over, I told myself in dramatic fashion. Depressed, I flipped on the television and flopped down to a mindless music video. According to MTV, the fashion trends at the moment were tight stretch pants, oversized shirts, fluorescent colors, side ponytails, Keds, pastel Reeboks, and metal belts. I had most of the new fashions, but I really wanted new clothes. My mom disagreed and thought that last year's wardrobe was perfectly suitable. According to her adult logic, the kids in Snohomish would have never seen my clothes and would have no idea they weren't new. I looked down at my white canvas Keds and doubted that was true. There were dark scuff marks along the toes and the little blue rubber Ked logos were starting to peel off. With a sigh, I flopped back down beside the piles of boxes and stared despondently at a Michael Jackson video. Julia, you had better be working in there and not just laying around watching MTV, my mother called out in her strictest tone. Lazily, I reached into the bottom of a box next to me and found an old Etch-A-Sketch that no longer worked. A few years back, I'd written a curse word in black Sharpie across the screen. I giggled, remembering the first time I had heard Ramona's dad say the word. At the time, I thought I was being funny. Now I knew it would only get me into trouble. Before my mom could see me and reprimand me, I quickly tucked it under an old trapper keeper with a peeling, iridescent tiger on the front. Turning off the television, I grabbed the full box, Etch-A-Sketch included, and carried it downstairs to the pile of things we would be giving away. My mom was sorting through dish towels and folding them into neat piles on the floor. The doorbell rang and she pushed herself up from the floor. No one came to our door unless it was somebody selling something, but my mom looked cheerful as she grabbed her wallet. "'I ordered a pizza for us,' she said, smiling, hoping her peace offering would soothe me into conformity or at least a small modicum of cooperation. I felt a slight twinge of guilt.' I had been mean and grumpy since she informed me we were moving. Well, that wasn't exactly true. I'd been mean and grumpy for the last couple of years pretty consistently. I didn't feel like I had much control over anything, and that was unfair in my young mind. It also didn't seem fair that my parents could secretly look at houses and determine my fate without even asking me what I thought. My mother had done her best to pacify me despite my rebellious tantrum and complete lack of assistance in packing until that point. As soon as I managed to pull myself out of bed that morning, she was waiting with a stack of cardboard boxes and a determined look on her face. I know you aren't happy about this move, sweetie, but we need to finish packing. I grunted in response and pulled my covers up to my chin mutinously. Undeterred, she started opening doors in my room and pulling out contents. Please understand, Julia. This is a great chance for us to move to a nicer area where you could have better schools and a better chance of getting the education you need to go to college. Watching her, I stubbornly refused to help. She made it sound like it was all for me and my future, but I knew that wasn't at all true. It was obvious that my mother loved our new house. The first time her and my father took me to see it, she was beaming. It was cream-colored with dark blue trim and gingerbread cutouts just below the peak of the roof. The paint was peeling and the yard was overgrown and the roof was falling down in pieces after last spring's windstorm. I was not impressed with the house or the neighborhood. Despite my complete lack of enthusiasm, I was forced to grudgingly admit the house had merit. It sat within one of the more desirable areas of Snohomish, just blocks from the high school and within walking distance of all the town had to offer. It was cute and had many historical touches like original woodwork, crown molding, and beautiful glass doorknobs. My mother was gushing as she showed me the details, but I was more focused on the awful location of the house than the house itself. The little town in question had nothing to offer someone like me. All I saw was mean-looking kids wearing unfashionable outfits and looking at me with disdain. Not to be discouraged by negative first impressions, my mother rattled off a list of wonderful attributes associated with Snohomish. The town was actually listed on the National Registry of Historic Places, According to my excited mother, a house was eligible to be listed on the Registry of Historic Homes because it was built in 1905 and still had its original exterior, yard, and interior layout. She also claimed that it had wonderful Queen Anne appeal, whatever that meant. Drawing my attention back to the pile in front of me, my mom cleared her throat and stared pointedly at the last few items of clothing. Rolling my eyes dramatically, I dropped a scuffed pair of red Reeboks into the giveaway pile and held up a neon pink miniskirt. "'That is too small, Julia,' she warned me as I thought about putting it in the keep pile. "'The school year was starting in a couple of weeks, and I was to be unceremoniously dropped "'into the sixth-grade classroom of Mr. Jim Collins at Central Elementary School. "'I'd been looking forward to starting the sixth grade with Mrs. Henry, "'just like the rest of my friends in Seattle. "'I was dreading the following week when I'd be forced to start all over again "'at a new school with new and unfriendly kids.' "'Stupid, pokey little school,' I grumbled, posited this would be the worst year ever. Registration had confirmed what I had already suspected. The local elementary school was small and outdated. In fact, there were not even enough kids for both a fifth and a sixth grade class, so our class was to be a fifth and sixth grade split. Coming from a class of 36 kids in Seattle, I was sure that none of my new classmates would be cool.' And what were we supposed to do with a bunch of lame little fifth graders? They could only drag us down academically and socially in my mind. But this was just another thing to add to the list of reasons why Snohomish was so lame. Sighing heavily, I turned my thoughts to our dinner. Setting the pizza box on the cluttered kitchen table, my mother gestured for me to join her. She had gathered up some paper plates and a few napkins as well as a couple of cans of cold soda. We never had soda, so this was a special treat. I sat down in front of a slice of pepperoni and dug in. My appetite had always been healthy, and now that we've been packing all day, I was ravenous. My mom picked at a piece of pepperoni and looked worried as I gobbled down a slice in mere seconds. Slow down, Julia. Chew your food, she told me with a frown. Ignoring her, I polished off the slice and grabbed a second one. We only ordered pizza a few times a year, and Dad typically ate most of it, so I usually end up with only a couple of slices. I fully intended to take advantage of the missing father situation and eat as much of the pizza as I could. I was positive that this would be the last pizza delivery since we surely would have no pizza places, much less ones who delivered in the backwoods town of Snohomish. Once I'd polished off as much of the pizza as I could, I told my mom I was going upstairs to finish packing. I fully intended to take the time to call my friend Ramona and complain. Grabbing the receiver of my Garfield phone, I dialed Ramona's number. Laying back on my purple vinyl beanbag chair, I waited for my best friend to pick up. Starting the year at a new school was pretty much the worst thing that could ever happen to a girl. I was positive that everyone would stare at me and whisper behind their hands. I needed reassurance and comfort. Instead, I got a busy signal— Slamming the phone down in the cradle, I kicked off my orange jelly shoes and fumed. After about an hour of pouting and cursing under my breath, I heard a knock on my bedroom door. My mom poked her head in. Can I come in? Slouching in my beanbag chair, I was throwing plastic Smurf dolls into a black metal trash can. Sure, whatever, I told her hitting the can with a well-worn blue doll. She eased into my room cautiously and took a glance around. A purple knitted bed cover was haphazardly thrown over the sheets that needed to be washed. I had spilled soda on them a few nights back and rebelliously left the stain for my mom to find later. My room smelled like candles. I'd been melting them on my windowsill and pouring the wax over some of the Smurf dolls. During one of my childish temper tantrums, I had smeared wax on the carpet. I felt slightly guilty when my mom ran a hand over the now-hard droplets. She was always so patient and never lost her temper, even when my ridiculous moods reached levels that could try the patience of a saint. Instead of reprimanding me, my mother turned back to the bed and sat down. I sighed heavily, rolling my eyes, crossing my arms, and waited for her to speak. I know this is hard for you, Julia, she told me. That was an understatement. Yep, I mumbled, refusing to make this any easier for her. She smiled, and I could tell she was longing to smooth my hair or kiss my cheek. Two things I had not let her do in years. Your dad and I just want you to know that we love you, and they were doing this for you. Yep. I said again, tapping the heel of my foot on the brown, shag carpeting of my room. My mind wandered. What in the heck was Ramona doing right now, and why couldn't she answer the phone? I was leaving the next day, and I needed some last-minute reassurance from my best friend. How about this, my mother began, attempting to bribe me into happiness. If you help me finish the packing tonight, I will take you to the pool this weekend, and you can spend as much time as you want there. The pool was my happy place, the one area where my friends and I still lorded our authority over the smaller kids. We only had a few more summers where it would still be considered cool to hang out at the city's swimming spot. Thinking she was taking me to our community pool in Seattle, I cheered and jumped up from my seat. Can I take Ramona? She looked confused for a moment. They have a great pool in Snohomish, honey. It's called Halmo, and it's pretty much better than the pool here in Seattle. My heart sank. I didn't want to go to a pool where the surrounding air would be polluted with the smell of cow manure. Even worse, I had no friends, so I'd be standing there by myself. "'Why can't we go here?' I pleaded in my most high-pitched and obnoxious voice, hoping she would cave in. She hated the sound of my voice when I whined, and I made sure to make it super whiny now. "'I will tell you what. If it's okay with Ramona's mom, you can take her to the new place in Snohomish and she can go to the pool with you.' "'Fine,' I told her, resigned to the pool in Snohomish, but secretly glad she was letting me take my best friend to share the horrors of small-town life.' When the weekend came, I was not disappointed. Ramona helped me load my boxes into the car before we made the 45-minute drive to Snohomish. We played games and pretended not to notice the manure smells. We headed over the hill and down into the valley of Snohomish. On either side of the road sat rows and rows of crops that fed people in the valley and around it. Farmhouses with large red barns lined the roads. Men on tractors rode into the distance, some plowing fields and others cutting hay. The car moved swiftly into the lower valley and came to a stop at a light. A sign to the left informed drivers they should take the next exit into town. It was a small airfield to the right with single prop airplanes and several corrugated steel buildings housing personal planes. A connected restaurant painted brick red boasted fresh baked pies and hot coffee. We turned off the long road after crossing the river and rounding a corner. The lower part of Snohomish came into view then, with wide expanses of blackberry bushes lining the streets above the river. Smaller houses with white picket fences and neatly kept lawns stretched out in front of us. As we made our way up D Street, larger houses came into view with historic details and well-appointed yards. A woman walked a golden retriever and waved as we drove by. Beaming, my mom waved back. Finally, we pulled up to our new house. Blooming rhododendrons boasted huge pink flowers that leaned against a tool shed next to the driveway. The house was built in the Queen Anne style, well-proportioned but in disrepair. It was obvious that the home had been well-cared for at one point, but was now rotting and in need of refurbishment. A porch leaned slightly to the left as it wrapped around the front of the house. None of this impacted my delighted mother, who seemed charmed as her face broke into a huge grin. I was not so happy about our new home. Everything about this place felt like I was moving to a different country. Gone were the busy city streets, corner markets, community centers, and large city parks. In their place were rows and rows of crops, corn stalks, farm stands, country roads, and lots of people wearing cowboy boots. How could I even begin to survive in such a place? Are you sure you have to move, Ramona whispered, grabbing my hand and squeezing tightly. We were wearing matching black rubber jelly bracelets, at least 20 on each arm, as well as white lacy gloves like the ones Madonna had worn in her latest MTV video, Along with our acid-washed jean jackets and loose pastel pants, we both also wore pointy-toed dress shoes with white lace socks. Our hair was ratted and hairsprayed. We had practiced these popular trends together for hours until we had them perfected. Neither one of us had been allowed to wear the new look to school, so we took advantage of our chance to wear them in public, even if it embarrassed my mom. Although it was challenging in our Madonna outfits, we managed to pull all of the boxes out of the car and bring them into the house. While we worked, Mom peppered us with stories about how great Snohomish was. The city was founded in 1858 by C. Ferguson, E.F. Caddy, and other families, she told us. And did you know that parts of the Richard Pryor Bustin' Loose movie were filmed here? Considering the fact that my mom would not let us watch adult movies, we hadn't seen that movie or even heard of it. We rolled our eyes and pretended not to hear as she cheerfully told us about the major historic landmarks in our new town. Her boundless enthusiasm for all things Snohomish only served to propel us into a flurry of activity that was rarely seen in teens anywhere. We bounded in and out of the house with boxes that would normally have taken us twice the amount of time to move. All the while, my mom kept up a steady stream of facts. Our little town, high school, was also mentioned in War Games. The fun movie with Matthew Broderick, she told us with a grin. Neither one of us said anything. When all of the boxes were unloaded, Ramona and I put our swimsuits on and rode our bikes the short distance to the Halmo pool. All signs of our mature preteen Madonna outfits were quickly abandoned for one-piece swimsuits, bright neon shorts, flip-flops, and bicycles with banana seats. It was the last of the warm weather and the air outside was getting cooler. Parking our bikes outside the pool, we locked the wheels to the nearby light pole. It was two in the afternoon when we got to the Halmo pool. The space was nothing like the inner city pool we were used to, but we were excited to get one more trip in before the school year started. As we made our way through the front doors and into the pool area, we became excited kids again for a few moments. There was something exhilarating about going to the pool in the summer. There was the thrill of jumping off the diving board into the deep end of the pool, endless games of Marco Polo, and of course, the possibility of running into a cute boy. Once we got into the sunlight beyond the locker room, we walked sedately to the first open space we could find. The pool deck was warm and the air reeked of chlorine. There were children everywhere, screeching and jumping into the water. Ramona and I carefully placed our beach house on the sun-baked cement and sat down. We thought of ourselves as adults and we were determined not to act like little kids. Despite our determined efforts, there was something about being at the pool that brought out the kid and both of us. Within minutes, we gave up on our plan and were jumping into the pool just like all of the other kids. That afternoon, we took turns dunking each other and playing tag under the water, before waiting in line and taking our turn doing cannonballs off the diving board. I had just completed a masterful splashing body flop when I ran into a body beneath the water. We both popped to the surface at the same time. It was a cute boy with dark brown hair, blue eyes, and a row of freckles across the bridge of his nose. He had braces and his hair was sticking up at odd angles. When he smiled, I glared at him, giving him my best Molly Ringwald look of reproach. "'Watch where you're going,' I snapped irritably. "'Hey, no offense. I'm pretty sure you were the one that ran into me,' he told me. "'He looked to be about the same age as me, but sounded mature for his age. "'He grinned in spite of my frosty glare. "'No way,' I hissed. "'I would never run into a weird boy like you. "'Despite my frosty reception, he seemed unfazed. "'I have never seen you at the pool before. Are you new around here?' The boy was friendly, but I was just as determined not to be. I had no desire to be friends with any of the local farm kids, and I was pretty sure they were all dirty, dressed funny, and smelled like manure. I was still convinced that we would go back to Seattle if I just hoped and prayed hard enough. I had a secret backup plan if things got really bad. Maybe my mom would let me stay with Ramona for the rest of the school year. Either way, I didn't plan on being around long enough to be friends, even if this boy was kind of cute." I'm just visiting. We're going back to Seattle tomorrow, I lied, grabbing Ramona's hand and heading for our towels. It was time to leave. See you around, he called after me with a chuckle. I forced myself not to turn around and look at him again. It didn't matter how cute he was, I wasn't coming back. Despite my confidence at the pool, the following week I was forced to admit defeat as my mom pushed me into the car for my first day at my new school. I had pleaded with her all weekend to let me go back and stay with Ramona for the school year. I had promised, begged, cajoled, and even given my word that I would do anything she wanted. Mom had calmly and firmly shot down all of my proposals. Even when I broke down in sobbing tears punctuated with a childish temper tantrum, she ignored me, even though I know she was longing to put her arms around me and comfort me. Surprisingly, both her and my father stayed firmly committed to the plan of Snohomish being our new home. After two weeks of sulking and being grounded to my room as a consequence, I was forced to admit defeat. Grudgingly, I pulled on a pair of acid-washed Jordache jeans, a long white button-up top, pink scrunch socks, and my all-purpose white Keds. I threw a loose metal belt of silver circles around my waist and put my hair into a high ponytail with a pink banana clip to match my socks. I completed my look with a bit of sparkling lip gloss. My mom was waiting in the car to drive me to school. Her eyebrows rose when she noticed my lip gloss, but she didn't say a word. She just handed me a Pop Tart when I got into the car. Normally, she would have forced me to sit down and have a healthy breakfast, usually, something with oatmeal or whole wheat toast. But today, she knew I was nervous and would need a little something extra. To distract me from the impending doom, she kept a running stream of conversation up, pointing out pretty houses and beautiful gardens on the way to school. Frowning mutinously, I stared out of the window in silence, willing the day to go by fast so that I could run home and call Ramona. After about a half hour in the school office, my paperwork was complete and I was released to an older woman who would take me to my new classroom. Teary-eyed, my mom sniffed and waved goodbye as I made my way down the hall toward my new class. I bit my bottom lip and kept my face carefully blank. As I scanned the hallways, my suspicions were confirmed. The school was much less substantial than my previous one had been, and I already missed the long walk up to the massive old brick building at the top of the hill. The cheerful guide opened my new classroom door and led me into room number six, where students were staring up at the teacher with their hands neatly folded. He smiled warmly and welcomed me in. There were no giggling groups of girls, no whispered conversations, just quiet and curious stares in my direction. I wondered what they thought of me. Most of them looked normal enough, but that didn't necessarily mean anything. The desks were organized into groups of four with a boy-girl alternating pattern. There were eight groups of four and one group that had only two students. Mr. Collins, impeccably dressed in a blue and green plaid dress shirt with a red bow tie, gently propelled me to the group of desks that only had two students. I looked nervously towards the teacher and tried not to look at the other students. This was a make-or-break moment, and I wanted to make a good first impression. To my right was a messy, blonde-haired boy named Steven. He was scribbling away on a piece of paper drawing dragons and knights. A few of the girls were looking at me curiously as I walked by. They all looked well-dressed and surprisingly stylish. One or two gave me friendly smiles. A few looked doubtfully at my city-inspired clothing. Directly across from me was a very cute boy with brown hair and freckles across the bridge of his nose. Instantly, I remembered him from the pool the previous weekend, and my face turned bright red. His name tag revealed that his name was Peter. There was no way to get around this one. It was going to be a very long school year. Chapter 4 He spent years mourning for her. Even so, he could not get her out of his system. She was addictive, like a drug. What he needed was rehab, far away from her to kick the habit of her. But he was not willing to do that. He kept coming back, circling the flame, even though he knew it would eventually burn him. Excerpt from Diverging Paths by Julia Swan. Present. Peter was seated at the dinner table when I got home that night. Not surprisingly, mom's best china was laid out on the familiar red and white checkered tablecloth. All these years later, Peter still got served on the best dishes. Despite my mom's beaming countenance, Peter's face seemed to be a mask of indifference. I glared at him. For some reason, his presence got under my skin. It had taken me nearly two decades to rebuild my relationship with my parents. And even then, I could still tell they didn't trust me because of the decisions I had made years ago. Our history was complicated, but they never could manage to see things from my perspective. They seemed to be looking at me now as if I would suddenly bolt like a skittish deer. I knew I deserved their distrust. I had left a trail of damage and I was prepared to wait it out to take my time and show them I was not the same impetuous teenager I'd been all those years ago. This was only fair given the fact that I had not spent much time with my parents since moving to California after high school. Even so, I was finally comfortable with the direction my life had gone, and I had no regrets. That being said, I was not ready for them to reinstate Peter into my life the minute I got back into town. It was a shock to my system that I was not prepared for. I circled the table, nostrils flaring, taking in the smell of meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and peas. Crisp red placemats had been carefully ironed and placed beneath my mom's white china plates. Crystal glasses filled with ice water were showcased, and mom's best silverware was on display atop ironed red napkins. The smell of meat and potatoes was making my mouth water. This was standard Wednesday night fare at my house, and a good part of the reason I could not lose weight when I was growing up. Food was comfort, peace, and more than a little bit of reconciliation. It was also one of the things I missed most about my family. I hadn't been home in years, so why did an annoying boyfriend from my past have to ruin this homecoming for me? I sat down, fuming. In typical fashion, my father was oblivious to any underlying tension as he offered Peter a beer. Peter obliged as my father handed him a bottle of Rainier, a staple in our house since I was little. I tried not to stare at the elegant hand holding the beer bottle. Peter had piano players' hands with square nails, long fingers, and just a dusting of dark hair. In contrast, my dad had mechanics' hands with oil stains and broken nails. I wasn't sure what I expected, but the conversation was lighthearted and friendly. I felt like I'd never left. But for some reason, it really bothered me that Peter was still so chummy with my family. There was no good reason Peter needed to be here. I wanted to stomp my feet and demand he leave. Somehow I doubted this would be an effective course of action, so I continued to glare at Peter. Steaming dishes of mouth-watering food seemed to taunt me as I tried to decide what to do. I was starving, but far too stubborn to let them get the best of me. I'm not hungry, I lied and stood up. I'll be in the backyard if anybody needs me. I stood there for a moment waiting to see what they would do. My mother shrugged and said nothing as she plopped a healthy scoop of mashed potatoes on Peter's plate. She was used to my temper tantrums and thought it would be best to just give me my space. Dad took a sip of his beer and passed his plate for some meatloaf. Clearly both she and my father had already chosen sides and no one was on mine. It hurt that they would not sympathize with my plight and I headed for the yard with my best look of an annoyed daughter. Sitting on an old tire swing, I shoved one sneakered foot off the slightly muddy ground below and cursed Peter under my breath. Damn him for hanging around. After all these years, he should have moved on and forgotten about me and my family. It was his fault I was missing out on a perfectly good meatloaf. I didn't need this, this uninvited reinsertion of the one person I had no desire to speak to. True, I was curious how he had been, and mildly interested in what he had done for the last twenty years, but I was in no hurry to sit down with him to dinner. I kicked at a gnarled root that wove its way around the tree. I was so absorbed in my own thoughts that I hadn't even noticed Peter making his way towards the swing. Is this a private pity party, or can anyone join in? I grunted an answer. The light was fading, and the backyard was taking on a mellow glow. Peter didn't wait for me to speak. I went and spoke to the sheriff this morning. He'll be sending someone out to talk to you tonight or tomorrow. Thanks, I said, pushing myself off the ground once more. This isn't the first time these particular kids have destroyed property around here. In fact, a few months back, some of them spray-painted the back wall of my store. He laid one of his hands on my back and gave me a gentle push. I remembered sitting in this exact spot when we were teenagers, and it made me feel guilty as hell. What was I doing coming back here? Why hadn't I just let the past stay in the past? Suddenly I felt like it was important to express what I was feeling. I didn't come back here to relive memories, I told him, stopping the progress of the swing with the sneaker-clad toe. I set it to spinning with the other foot, watching Peter fade into a blur of colors. Reaching out, he stopped the spinning, the muscles in his forearm straining as he held the thick rope. He looked me right in the face. His expression was inscrutable. What did you come back here for? His face was more handsome now, 20 years later, if that was even possible. Does it really matter? My words echoed my thoughts. He bent down directly in front of me, and I noticed the way his six-foot-tall frame looked very different with adult features and muscle. The blue eyes that i had once loved met mine, strangely devoid of emotion. He'd learned to hide it well. Yeah, it kind of does matter, Julia. I swallowed hard, trying not to let my mind go back to all the times we had spent evenings in this very same backyard, kissing, touching, and doing all of the secret experimenting teenagers did. He was my first kiss, my first touch of male flesh, and the first of many other things I had experienced. He was the first boy i had ever loved, and it was hard not to remember those things when his face was just inches from mine. Those lips, slightly full and framed by a closely cropped beard and mustache, were so near I could reach out and touch them if I wanted— Did I want to touch them? There were wrinkles and fine lines around his eyes now. He was nearly 40, just like me. I'm taking a vacation, I told him defiantly, not sure if I should offer up the truth or keep things simple. Okay, so why would a big time author come here when she could go anywhere in the world with a glamorous boyfriend? he asked snidely. I clenched my teeth and attempted to keep my blood pressure modulated. I don't have a boyfriend, and two books with moderate sales does not make me a big-time author. I snapped a bit more harshly than I intended. A bit of vanity took over despite my attempts to push it away. Moderate was not exactly the best term for my success. Did he know about my books? How well they'd done? There was still a tiny piece of me that wanted him to be proud of what I had achieved. The corner of his lip went up into an unexpected sneer. I know all about your life now, Julia. You drove up in a Lexus and you're wearing a Rolex, he told me. Defensively, I pushed down the sleeve of my coat. The watch had been a gift from my editor when my first book hit the New York Times bestseller list, and I had bought the car used for well under list price. I felt an instant flash of regret at having the car shipped up instead of just getting a rental. But then again, why should I feel guilty I'd gotten out of Snohomish and done well for myself? Am I supposed to apologize because I got out of this stupid town and made something of myself? His hands grasped the side of the tire swing, gripping the hard ring of black rubber. No one expects you to apologize for doing well, Julia. There's a whole lot of other stuff that people are bothered by. I watched the swing as it spun, turned, and then spun in the opposite direction. I looked up and tried to meet his eyes, but he refused to meet mine. Some people, or just you, I asked sharply. He snorted. You have the nerve to come waltzing back here like you never did a single thing wrong? You have a very skewed sense of what it's like growing up here. Just so you know, Julia, most of the things you wrote about us were not flattering, true, or appreciated. So that was the heart of the matter, the reason behind his cold demeanor. It made sense, but I refused to apologize. This time he met my eyes. He seemed like he was softening a bit now. Something tender in his eyes was waiting. We were tiptoeing around the past, and it was all around us, whispering to me, nudging at my emotions. I didn't want to think about this, to be forced into feeling something all these years later. I'm sorry I didn't stay and work at the grocery store with you, I told him, standing up abruptly. Is that what you wanted? He grabbed my wrist before I could spin away from him, circling it with his familiar fingers. I never expected that from you, Julia, but I could never understand why you thought it wasn't good enough for the rest of us. You could have gotten out if you wanted to, I reminded him. You were smart, and you were lucky enough to have the kind of natural talent that most of us can only dream about. Bitter laughter startled me. To my surprise, he ignored my comment and came back to my writing. I chose not to go in that direction, and a lot of other people were just fine with that decision. You shouldn't be so judgmental, Julia. A lot of us have managed to make a good life for ourselves in this little town. Despite all the crap you decided to tell the world in your books, he snapped. Irritation was causing my face to redden, and I could not hide my feelings. I always hated that part of myself. The fact that I had such a hard time hiding my emotions. Really, Peter? First of all, my books are fiction, only very loosely based on real life. Peter didn't let me continue. Cutting me off, he leaned in. That's BS and you know it, Julia. Everyone knows who those characters are, especially the one who's supposed to be me. He had read them? Both of them? It's fiction, Peter, I repeated. Again, he ignored my arguments. Those characters are a bad reflection of a town that didn't deserve this. But that isn't the point. You act like you're better than everyone who stayed here, and that pisses people off. Are you serious? I asked incredulously. There's nothing wrong with making something out of my life by sharing my awful life stories or making money from these horrible experiences. I don't understand how your life is so bad, Julia, Peter growled. You grew up in a nice house as a spoiled only child, got to go to college where you wanted, and pretty much did whatever the hell you wanted without answering to anyone. How is that so terrible? It's not that simple, Peter, and you know it, I protested. Yes, Julia. I don't know if you remember, but there were so many nights that we laid in the same yard talking about this very topic. When did you suddenly decide your life is so horrible? There were a lot of situations that were far worse than yours. In fact, you shared a few of them in your books. I took a deep breath and blew it through my nose. Just because I decided not to stay and work at the local grocery store doesn't mean I'm some kind of monster. It was getting dark and Peter didn't seem to be coming around to my point of view. No, Julia, what makes you a bad person is making money off the stories about our lives while implying that yours is so much better. This time I snorted. I'm pretty sure that getting out and making something out of my life would generally be considered a better life than staying and making minimum wage until I retire. Congratulations. You really have turned into a shallow and materialistic woman, Julia, Peter told me, pushing away from the swing. He continued before I could react. Now that you have the clothes, the car, and the expensive house, are you really happy, Julia? Do all those things make you happy? And if that is the case, then why are you back here looking sad and unfulfilled? I shrugged without answering, and he surprised me by moving closer. Some of us, the ones you made fun of in your novels, are happy we stayed here. We love this town and the people in it. If you feel differently, then you should have never come back. His face was so close to mine, I could see the dark flecks in his irises. There was a red flush to his tan skin, and I knew from experience that such a sign meant he was really angry. Fair enough, I agreed, but that was as close as I would come to apologizing. You did a lot of damage, Julia, he told me, turning away from me. Damage? That was it. The heart of the matter. "'And what damage are you referring to, Peter?' I asked him calmly without taking the bait. I refused to let him goad me into a shouting match like the ones I used to be part of in the old days. He ran a hand through his salt-and-pepper hair. It was strange to see gray hair on a man that I'd known before puberty. You lied, Julia, to me and your parents. You deceived all of us. And you made me sound like a complete lovesick idiot. Yes, I loved you, but all the crap about me wasting away because of my everlasting love for you is in your imagination.' "'The wind quickly left my sails. "'He did have a point. "'Perhaps I'd been vain, "'imagining he spent time pining away from me. "'I stood up and opened my mouth to respond, "'but I didn't get the chance to answer. "'My mom opened the back door "'and was standing on the back porch "'with a mug of tea in one hand. "'Julia, there's a police officer here to talk to you. "'He wants to see the pictures you took this morning.' "'Our conversation would have to be put on hold. "'Abandoning the tire swing, I gave Peter "'one last look over my shoulder. "'He was making his way to the back gate. "'He held up a hand in a mock salute.' "'Thanks for dinner, Mrs. Swan. The meatloaf was delicious as usual.' My mom waved and called out a goodbye. Frowning, I followed her back into the house. He was small for his age, thin, sickly, and unnaturally pale. His eyes were like two dark pits, bottomless, sucking the air around them into vast holes of nothingness. There was something ghostly about him, as if he had the spirit of someone born long ago. His knowing stare sent a shiver down Jane's back as she tried to figure out what to do with him.' Excerpt from The Long Road Home by Julia Swan Chapter 5. Past Settling into Snohomish was a drawn-out process for me, especially when a part of me kept hoping my parents would give up and decide to go back to Seattle. In response to my reluctance to settle in, my parents tried to develop routines that would help me see all of the good aspects of our new town. As part of the concerted efforts to get me to fall in love with my new home, Mom took me to pizza at Alfie's every Thursday night. It was a time I relished, and not just because I loved pizza. Alfie's was one of the only restaurants in town, and it was usually filled with all the local kids jostling for tables, playing video games, and drinking gallons of pop. The little pizza joint was one of the most popular hangout spots in Snohomish on any given night. It was also one of the places where I was likely to catch a glimpse of Peter. Not that he ever paid much attention to me, but I liked watching him from a distance and imagining what he was saying to his family. Peter's dad, mom, and sister also came to Alfie's once a week as family— this was one, but not the only reason I chose Alfie's. Ron Daughtry was a little over six feet tall with jet black hair and a beard that was always neatly trimmed. In typical dad fashion at the time, he usually wore a Ron John sweatshirt with high-waisted jeans and boat shoes. Peter's mom had long auburn hair that was usually pulled back into a ponytail or a braid. In sharp contrast to Ron's more casual style, she always wore embroidered blouses or sweater sets, pencil skirts, and a pearl necklace with matching earrings. Peter's older sister Kimberly was fashionably dressed in the latest guest jeans, a pastel t-shirt and scrunch socks, with a wide leather belt and keds. Rain or shine, her bleached blonde hair was ratted into a pile on the top of her head. She completed her look with lots of rubber bracelets and a bored look as she picked the cheese off her pizza while sipping a diet coke. That particular night I was babysitting one of the local neighborhood kids. My mom thought it would teach me responsibility to help me earn some extra money for school clothes. I was ambivalent about the idea of watching bratty kids, but I did like having extra money. My dad was working late that night, so Danny came home with us to dinner. He was about three at the time, and I had only been watching him for a few weeks. Because I was still young, my mom helped out with babysitting duties, and we usually brought Danny back to our house for dinner. He was currently sitting in a booster seat and devouring a huge, messy piece of pepperoni pizza. Peter happened to walk by at that moment and noticed me. To my surprise, he politely paused to chat. Hey, Julia, how's it going? Is this your little brother? He stopped behind Danny and ruffled his fine blonde hair. Danny turned around and glared at him. He didn't like being touched. I could feel the blood rising up in my face. Nope, I'm babysitting. This is Danny. I introduced the two. Peter grinned and stuffed his hands into his jean pockets before he realized he was ignoring my mom. He held out a hand. I'm Peter, one of Julia's classmates. You must be her mom. Predictably, my mom beamed. I could tell she thought Peter was adorable. She had that look in her eyes like she was planning the wedding even though we were only twelve. Jenny Swan, she replied. You can call me Jenny though. Mrs. Swan makes me think of Julia's grandmother. I didn't want to interrupt your dinner. Just thought I'd stop by and say hi, he trailed off, turning away from the table with a polite wave. Nice to meet you, my mom called out as Peter made his way back to the video games. Danny grunted and threw his slice of pizza onto the floor. I groaned and turned back to my bratty charge. He was covered in tomato sauce and rubbing it into his eyes and hair. I gave my mom a pleading look. I wanted to follow Peter over to the video game area and play some Pac-Man or Super Mario Brothers like everyone else, but my mother shook her head. You brought him here, Julia, and you're the one getting paid. Grab some wet napkins and wash his face and hands. Grumbling, I cleaned up Danny and pulled him out of his booster seat. Immediately, he started crying and put up his hands to be held. He was too big and too annoying for me to pick up. I gave him a pointed glare, and my mom paid our check. He held up a hand and looked at me with teary eyes until I gave him mine. Instead of the video arcade, we took him back to our house where my mom tucked him into the guest room downstairs. So, is Peter your boyfriend, my mom asked, slyly pulling out a mug from the cupboard and grabbing a tea bag? I looked up at my mom and rolled my eyes. Ew, no mom, I don't have a boyfriend. Well, he's pretty adorable, she pointed out as she lit the burner under a tea kettle. Boys are gross, I insisted, scratching out a problem I had done incorrectly and writing in the correct answer. My mom pulled a spoon out of the silverware drawer and grabbed a little honey pot. You won't always feel that way, she reminded me. I snorted loudly. They will probably always be gross, I insisted. I didn't really believe this theory, but I was not about to give my mother ammunition to use against me later. Have you ever kissed a boy, she asked me, as I looked at her sharply. No way, I hissed. Even if I had, I would never have shared that information with her. Her fishing expedition continued nonetheless. Are the boys talking about sex, she asked, trying to appear simultaneously innocent and disinterested. I blushed, remembering the sex education class I'd been forced to sit through with the rest of my class a few weeks back. The boys had been separated from the girls, presumably for their own glass that was strictly for males. It had been extremely awkward and gross for a couple of hours. I could still see the squiggly little sperm wiggling their way through the fallopian tubes toward the eggs. How they got there was still a mystery to most of us. The concept of having sex was such a foreign topic that it seemed to be only possible in the very, very distant future. In my opinion, the whole thing was gross. At the moment, I had no desire to kiss a boy, much less give him access to a thing so intimate as to create a baby. Mom, I don't need a lecture about the birds and the bees, I coolly informed her, writing the answer to another one of my homework problems. She was relentless. But you know that if you have questions, you can always come to me, right? I set my pencil down calmly, focusing on my mom. Her frizzy brownish-red hair was cut into a bob and curled around her shoulders. She'd asked the hairdresser to give her a cut like Kelly McGillis in Top Gun. The effect was not even remotely similar. On Kelly, it was trendy and sexy. On my mom, the curly bob looked like she was wearing a large, unmanageable wig. Yes, I know that, Mom. And no, I don't have any questions. Boys are gross, and I don't want to have sex with anyone. I gave her a pointed look to reassure her. She seemed placated. Are your friends doing things with boys, she asked me, trying to sound casual. I only had one friend. Cindy Swiner seemed to think exactly like me. Boys were gross. Nope. Regina Richards has a boyfriend, I think, but she's slutty and none of us want to be trashy like her. My mom looked surprised, but kept her mouth closed. I packed up my homework and stuffed it into my trapper keeper. Can I go watch TV now? I asked her, hoping she would let me get in a couple of hours of MTV before bed. No MTV, she told me. Find something educational, PBS or one of the other documentary networks. I knew better than to argue with her. If I debated the issue, she would ban me from watching what I wanted for weeks. As it was, I just wanted to spend some time vegging out and thinking about Peter. Did I have a crush on him? I wasn't sure. The whole boy situation was too new for me to have an opinion yet. I was far too young and naive to make plans about boys beyond staring at Tiger Beat magazine and dreaming about Corey Haim. The future would have to wait. For now, it was TV time. He seemed to be from another world, one far away from the teenage angst Jane was dealing with at the moment. Despite his rather tough background, he was polite, well spoken, and spent his time talking to Jane about things that were beyond the understanding of a child under the age of 10. It was a strange relationship they had, and one that Jane wasn't sure how to classify. Excerpt from The Long Road Home by Julia Swan. Chapter 6 Present I came into the house that night to find a young police officer sitting at the table. In contrast to Peter, this man was lean, without an extra ounce of weight, and his blonde hair was slicked back with way too much gel. His features were pinched and would have been more handsome if he carried a bit more weight on his frame. He seemed barely old enough to be out of high school. He was holding a pen and asking my dad questions. He looked up when I entered the room and stood. Shaking my hand, he introduced himself as Officer Daniel Lincoln. He explained that he'd been assigned to our case when the officer originally in charge had transferred to another state. I had a strange feeling that I somehow knew the person standing in front of me. There was something more than a little familiar about his face and mannerisms. I squinted at him, trying to place his face. He was attractive, but in a familiar way that you would typically notice in a cousin or other relative. Was my memory really that bad? Maybe I needed to start taking some ginkgo biloba. All business, but in a polite way, Officer Lincoln sat back down and scribbled a few more notes in a little black notebook. His nose was sharp and aquiline, like something you would see on a Roman statue. He smelled like the outdoors, smoke, and fall leaves. I sat down across from him. My dad got up from the table as I sat down. I'm going to go out to the garage to do a few chores. Let me know if you need anything else from me. My mom headed for the kitchen, and I could hear her washing the dinner dishes with more force than was necessary. Any leads on the kids who destroyed the garden, I asked, as I pulled my phone out of my pocket and sat down at the table. He looked at it with a raised eyebrow. I'm reviewing all of the witness accounts now, but we have a pretty good idea of who is responsible. Between the two of us, I'm sure that it's Kimberly Bishop's two boys. I nodded and traced the edge of my phone. I had no idea who he was referring to. Who's Kimberly Bishop? He gave me a pointed look. Peter Daughtry's older sister. My mouth dropped open and then closed again. He seemed to know all of these people and their relationships with me, but I could not remember how I knew him. Yes, this isn't the first time these kids have done damage. Kimberly hasn't done such a great job with supervising them since she lost Justin last year. It was starting to fall into place. Justin? Justin Bishop? I asked surprised. Yeah, they got married right out of high school and had two kids, Kenny and Stuart. Justin died last year in a car accident, and they've been a bit lost since then, he told me with a sympathetic nod. It was clear that he felt bad for the situation, but wanted someone to pay better attention to the kids who were running around unsupervised and getting into trouble. I'd heard about the accident that killed Justin, and I knew the circumstances behind it, too. I had not known that Justin was married to Kimberly, though. He had kept that part of his life private and completely secret from social media. Perfect, I grumbled. Kimberly Daughtry always hated me, and now it seems her snotty little kids do, too. This should give her even more reason to try and make my life miserable. He frowned. Clearly, he had no idea of the entire backstory, as he fairly oozed with sympathy for Kimberly and her family. Go easy on them. They're struggling at the moment, and this is just their way of acting out. I did not feel the same sense of sympathy, especially when Kimberly had always gone out of her way to be mean to me. I was pretty sure her stupid kids were running around unsupervised and doing whatever they wanted. A death in the family was no excuse for letting your kids run wild. Is letting them destroy thousands of dollars of property the best way to help them? Can't she get them some counseling? He seemed surprised at my hard stance. Had he expected me to forgive and forget because their father had died? I believe she's working on that, and we're trying to get some more youth-oriented programs here to work with the kids that are causing trouble. As you can probably guess, programs take time and community support. I hope you'll back the program and give your support, too. I snorted. I was happy to volunteer, but there were limits. What kind of support, I asked him. Come to the town hall meeting next week. We'll be discussing some of our plans, he invited. As long as there's a plan in place to keep these little hooligans from doing more damage. As if sensing my patience was wearing thin, Officer Lincoln asked more questions about the incident. Did I have any pictures? I slid the on button to turn my phone on and showed him the pictures I'd taken. The images were grainy and slightly blurry. I was sure they wouldn't be any help. Can you use these? I took them yesterday morning as the kids were riding away. He handed me a police department business card. Can you text me those images? I took the card and examined it. The name was setting off little tingles in my memory. Did you grow up around here? I asked him, looking at the clean-shaven face and the slim gold crucifix that sat around his collar. He didn't wear any other jewelry. Right down the street, he said with a smile. You were my babysitter when I was little. I suddenly remembered little Daniel, snotty-nosed and sickly. I started babysitting him just after his third birthday. He'd been skinny with transparently pale skin and red-rimmed eyes. His mother, Angela, was always running off on a motorcycle to meet random guys. She wore ratty black clothes and lots of dark-smeared eyeliner. An alley cat probably would have been a better mother than Angela Lincoln. I winced at the memory of her and hoped she had gotten her life together. Despite a rough upbringing, Daniel had made some pretty dramatic changes in his own life over the last few decades. As a child, he had cried a lot and spent most of his time glued to the television in his sparsely furnished front room. Normally, I would not have babysat for a woman like Angela. She was a bad mom, irresponsible and mean. She came home hours after she said she would, never left food in the house, and always underpaid me. But I felt sorry for little Daniel and his constant hacking cough. His dirty clothes were two sizes too small, and he always smelled like urine and cough syrup. Most of the time, I ended up taking Daniel back to my house to take a bath, wash his clothes, and feed him a decent meal. "'My mom loved having him around. "'I was sure he reminded her of how much she wanted another child. "'He cried when it was time for me to take him home, "'and he cried when his mom got home. "'In sharp contrast the Daniel standing in front of me "'was very different from the child he'd once been. "'He seemed to be studying me too, examining my differences. "'Our eyes met and he smiled. "'I know, I look much different than I did all those years ago,' "'he told me with a chuckle, slapping his little notebook closed. "'That was an understatement. "'I gave him a weak smile. I'm sure we all do.' "'He laughed. Actually, you look exactly the same. "'I wondered if that was good or bad, but I dared not ask. "'As much as I wanted to think I was imagining things, "'I was getting the distinct impression he was eyeing me "'with the sort of flirtatious glances an interested man gave a woman. "'I was entirely uncomfortable with this new dynamic. "'Thanks,' I told him, pushing my chair back and standing up. "'It was the very same scarred oak table I used to sit at "'while my mom served us homemade macaroni and cheese with hot dogs.' The yellow straw mats were new, but were undoubtedly from the same company that Mom had been purchasing them from since I was a kid. I tried to remember the last time I'd seen him. I was pretty sure it was before I left for college. He'd been about eight by then. Peter and I had taken him to the Humboldt pool for a swim. He wore green swim trunks that barely hung onto his skinny hips. There were a few faint blue smudges that looked like bruises on his arms. I hoped for his sake that he would grow up and get far away from his mother. As I sat on the edge of the pool working on my tan, he looked up at me and smiled. "'Julia, you're beautiful,' he told me with a shy smile. "'I want to marry you someday.' "'Peter had come up behind him and heard the last of our exchange. "'Sorry, buddy,' he said, ruffling Daniel's hair. "'She's already taken, and you're far too young.' "'Undeterred, Daniel pushed him away angrily. "'He did not like Peter's patronizing tone, and his face was dark with hatred. "'In response, Peter dunked him. "'He came up sputtering and cursing at Peter. "'And that was the last time I saw Daniel.' Drawing me back to the present, Officer Lincoln cleared his throat and moved towards the door, replacing his black cap. Was he remembering the same exchange from all those years ago? He opened the door and let himself out. Send me those pictures and I will contact you when I get more information. I stood on the porch and waved as he got into his patrol car. Will do, I replied. Hope to see you at the town hall meeting, he called out as he drove off in his patrol car. That is the end of today's podcast. Tune in next week to hear the next chapters of my novel, Returning to Snohomish thanks for listening if you want to email us you can check out our email address from the show notes or you can keep up to date with us on our social media on twitter or instagram at podcast.addict if you know an author that would like to share their work or if you have feedback for any of our authors please send us a message at the email address that is listed in the show notes that is it for tonight fiction fans stay smart keep it real and always support your local authors bye